you'll join with me, our scripture reading today is from John 15, 1 through 11. And in our Pew Bibles, this is page 901. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Lunar New Year to those who celebrate that. I'm accepting those red envelopes, so <laughs> hand those over to me. Um, we've been in this section of scriptures called the Upper Room Discourse, which started back in chapter 13. It'll go through all the way Chapter 17, these chapters give us quite a bit of detail into the last hours of Jesus' life uh, with his disciples and when Jesus is giving his last words to his disciples. And as shared before, chapters 1 through 12 is known as the Book of Signs. The Gospel of John is broken into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 12, known as the Book of Signs, and then the rest of the chapter, known as the Book of Glory. Last week, we looked at chapter 14 through verse 31, and it ends with this very interesting statement. It ends with this, rise, let us go from here. But it's kind of interesting because if you read on through chapter 15, it doesn't seem like they went anywhere. It seems like they're still like talking there. So what's going on? Well, these words seem to be the same words used for a military context. And with that context in mind, it's about a readiness of the enemy approaching. That the darkness is coming in an attempt to defeat Jesus and they need to ready themselves. So like, let's get up, let's be ready. And so not completely clear if they actually got up physically and left the upper room at chapter 14 or this was a reference to the powers of darkness approaching and the hour has come for them to be ready. Now Steph did a wonderful reading of verses 1 through 11 that we're going to be going through. I just wanted to make a quick pit stop before we go on and I wanted to talk about verse uh, 7 really quickly because when people read 7, they're like, well, I can ask Jesus whatever I want and then I'm going to get it. 
Well, let's look at that more carefully. Jesus is not saying, ask for whatever you want and I'll just do it for you. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, meaning Jesus' living words are what are guiding your life so that you think the way that Jesus thinks, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So don't take that out of context. Enough of that, that's not what the whole message is about. Jesus and his disciples, they pass by the temple on many occasions. They've been through Jerusalem many, many times. And just in this week in the Bible passages we're looking at, what we know as Holy Week, they are staying at a town called Bethany, which is a short walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. And they're spending the night there, and then they go back to the temple every day, and this is where Jesus is teaching. So there was this imprint of the temple on their mind as they're walking from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they're seeing this grand temple. And I bring this up because this isn't something that's commonly known by everyone, but there's this humongous giant golden vine that stands at the entrance of the sanctuary. Before you go into the Holy of Holies and that curtain's there, there's this humongous vine that's there made out of gold and you can't miss it. You, you see this thing there and you're like, that's money. Like that's a lot of money. So I have a slide here. I hope that it shows up. Maybe not. Sorry. I, I had it there. I, I, was, I went back in time and I took this picture of this vine and it was like beautiful and it was all this stuff. Ta-da! Those people are real. And um, this is a replica. Right? You can go to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem today and they have all these things that are there ready for the return of Christ. They have all these things, but they have these things and this replica that's kind of like if you can imagine this kind of replica, this is that vine going up the columns and you see that guy on the ladder. And then you, so imagine the amount of gold that is because in one necklace, it, how much is your solid gold necklace worth? I mean, imagine this, right? So this vine was made completely out of solid gold, pure gold. And what it symbolized was Israel. In the Old Testament terms, this vine symbolized the people of God, the God who brought the people out of Egypt, and they were the vine of God that was planted. And it's this beautiful picture of the people of Israel and what God had done for them. The people of Israel loved this picture of themselves. And so every time they walked by, they're like, that's us. Like, look how valuable we are. And look at us. We're the one that are, we're going to usher the people into the presence of God. And, and this is what it symbolizes for us. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded how wealthy people during this time wanted to add on to this already ornate and invaluable symbol. And these wealthy people would add more gold to this vine. They would add more golden branches, more golden leaves, more golden grape clusters. Solid gold grapes, right? But clusters of them. So much gold on just this area and a lot of gold in this vine. And so if you imagine back in 70 AD when the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple, they wanted that gold 
and they just burned everything so it would melt and then they would be able to collect it. So it's recorded that when the Romans went back in to claim all of this gold from this melting, not just from here, but from the entire temple, it caused this plummeting of 50% in the value of gold because of inflation, because of the supply of gold that just suddenly went up. So gold was cut in half when they went in and, and melted this down and collected it. And so Josephus recorded how some of these huge gold grape clusters were the size of a man, full-grown man. Grape clusters, solid gold. Imagine how much that was worth. Tremendous value in their symbolism. That they, the people of Israel, were the vine of God. Now, earlier on in John's gospel, Jesus told his disciples that the temple was really a representation of himself. He said this in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's referencing himself. That Jesus was the true temple, and the sacrifices that were made could never take the place of Jesus' sacrifice for us. That those sacrifices had to be done regularly to atone the people. But Christ's sacrifice, it just had to be done one time. That's it for our forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifices were just a picture of the cost of sin and how it was to be redeemed. And so they had to keep slaughtering turtle doves and keep slaughtering sheep and keep slaughtering animals. And this picture of Christ bearing our sins on the cross was final. He was sacrificed for our sins. It is done. You and I are clean. And so Jesus taught them that with the symbol of the temple. That's the symbol of the temple. But there's more. That solid gold vine right at the entrance of the Holy of Holies that everyone admired, as God is speaking of being the branches attached to the vine and is giving them and saying, abide in me and all these sorts of things, you have to think of this picture of what he's saying. That Christ is speaking of himself as the vine. And when the disciples saw that solid gold vine with those great clusters made of solid gold the size of a full-grown man, they thought that was just a magnificent sight, that that was so much money, so invaluable, and everyone who saw all that gold thought that, you know, this thing is magnificent, Check this thing out. This is amazing. And so Jesus moves the disciples' attention from that vine, and he's not just saying, you know how it is when you describe something too big and people can't get it in their head, and so when he says, I'm the temple and I'm going to raise it in three days, maybe it's too big, but then if he just centers it on this entrance, this vine, maybe they get it in their head. Whoa. Jesus is saying that, like, I can see it more clearly because I can see just this entrance and this vine and solid gold, but actually it's the entire temple, but I can actually get that idea now that he's the true vine, and in order to be part of God's family, you need to be connected to Jesus, and the only way into the Holy of Holies to get through this is through this vine to God. And it's important to abide in the vine if the branches are to have life, if there's to be any fruit. And as Jesus is this true vine, the Heavenly Father is the vine dresser who prunes the vine, and pruning bears more fruit. 
And so going from this symbolic solid gold vine into the vineyards and what vine dressing is all about, Jesus is giving the disciples a picture of what it means for them to be Christians. And there are things for us to know about Jesus' teachings. And at the very core of the Christian life is to be connected to God, to be in union, to be joined by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this preposition into is very distinct in the Bible. That one is believing into Jesus. This is very distinct amongst ancient writings. It's not found in any other ancient writings, this preposition that people use to describe this preposition into people. It's only found in Jesus. So, for example, Paul gives us some some of these. Let me share with you some of these examples. Romans chapter 6 Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Galatians 3.27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. A person believed Caesar Augustus, right? You believe what he said the founder of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. One believed about Caesar Augustus. The first Roman emperor, we believe things about him. One believed in Caesar Augustus, but no one believed into Caesar Augustus. No one would ever say that. No one would ever write that. Now, we do hear this proposition today, right? You do hear there are people today who are going to watch this thing on television today. Right? And they are really into football. Right? So you understand that. And when they say that, you know exactly what they mean. They are devoted to football. They are fanatical about football. They spend money on buying things to represent their team. They actually spend money doing that. And they have dedicated their mind to football. And when people are into football, it's more than just, I like it. Right? They're really into it. They follow the statistics. They know all the players. They spend a lot of money on going to games and buying the gear and all this. They are fully dived into it. When we come to believe into the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just believing the things about Jesus. It's about being united, joined to Jesus, just like those fanatical fans are, who are into their team. They are joined to that team. They are investing time and money. They are into that team. So for us Christians, what does that mean? It means we have this personal communion with Jesus, this intimate relationship with Jesus who gives us life. And without that union, there is no life because it's not connected to the vine that gives life to the branches. Believing into Jesus connects us to Jesus, and we get to know Jesus more deeply as he gets to know us more deeply. And the Christian life is dependent on the power that comes to us through Christ by the Holy Spirit. That we are in fellowship with Christ, and everything that we do, we do in communion with Christ. And this is at the core of the Christian life, is to be connected, communing with Christ. Okay, so union with Christ is at the core of the Christian life. So 
How does one progress? How does one grow in Christ? And we read repeatedly this verb in chapter 15. It's this verb, abide. Abide. That progress, growth, development, advancement comes through abiding in Christ. So in other words, where do you live? Where's your home? Abode, right? Where is that for you? And this is the language Jesus is using here. In order to make progress in the Christian life, one needs to be united with Christ and one needs to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ in order to be able to draw from Christ. This is the picture of the vine and the branches. The branches can only thrive when drawing from the vine. Because without the vine, those branches will die. And those dead branches are cut off by the vine dresser. Dead branches look like they're attached to the vine. You can't tell. And it's the same thing as when we get these heavy storms and these heavy winds, and you see these trees that just break apart, and you notice like, oh, the branch broke because it's dead. It's attached to the tree, but it broke because it's dead. It's not living to gain all the nourishment to hold that branch to the trunk of the tree. It's the same thing with branches and vines. It, it cannot be sustained, and it looks like it's attached. It looks like it, but it's not drawing from the vine. There's no nourishment. It's not thriving. They can't draw from the vine, and we just saw this happen. The disciples just saw this happen in the past hour of their Passover dinner. The vine dresser cut off the dead branch. John chapter 13, verse 27, Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. He's being cut. See, everyone else was fooled that Judas was attached to the vine. They had no idea. They thought Judas was going to run an errand for Jesus or something. They didn't know that this meant like, oh, he's not one of us. He's the one that's going to betray Jesus. But Jesus knew Judas was the dead branch, that Judas was no longer united with Christ. He was no longer abiding in Christ, that Judas was spiritually dead. He looked like he was attached because he was there. Jesus washed his feet. He was having dinner. He did all these things, but he's not. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. You see, it's possible, very possible, to look like you are attached to the vine when you're really not. How would you know? How do you know if you are attached to the vine? It's an, and it's very simple. You bear fruit because you're alive. That dead branch doesn't have live leaves coming out of it anymore. It doesn't have live fruit coming out of it anymore. It is dead and you're going to see it brown and, and you don't necessarily see it until a heavy wind or a heavy storm comes and it breaks and you're like, oh, and you see inside it was completely dead. But the way that you see is the fruit. Because if you are drawing spiritual nourishment from Jesus, you will produce fruit. That vine will inevitably produce fruit in you as a living branch. There would be changes in your life to reflect who you are united to. 
who you are abiding in. You'd not only be connected to the vine, there would be fruit coming out of your branch because you are connected to the vine. Look back to these verses, starting in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Skip down to verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That growth, that progress in the Christian life is evidenced by fruit. And it's not a painless growth. There is struggle in this development. You take a look at chapter 15, verse 2. Go all the way back. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We understand that, right? We've we've talked about that already. But here's the second part of that, which is kind of painful. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. What? Come on. Why? Why? That it may bear more fruit. Did you hear that? This is like bummer. This is a bummer verse right here. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. And then you bear more fruit, and then you're pruned some more. And then you bear more fruit, and then you're pruned some more. And then you bear more fruit, and then you're pruned some more. I mean, this is not painless. This is not suffering free. I don't know about you, but I love vineyards. I love them. I've done a lot of lessons there. I used to take interns up to vineyards just to do Bible lessons out there because they they have so much to teach us about the Christian life. It would be awesome just to do a retreat at a vineyard and go through these things, right? I love sharing about the Bible through vineyards, and we're in such a wonderful place that they're all over us. Right, you go east, there's Livermore, you go south, there's Santa Cruz, you go north, there's Napa and Sonoma. Like, they're all over. It's just an awesome place to live to get all of these lessons. They're so rich in what they have to teach us. If you ever want, the closest one I think is 35 minutes away, Livermore. You can get there and there it is, right? Visit a vineyard and just see how it operates and read it with the Bible. And it's just like how chapter 15 describes When you're walking through a vineyard, the vine dressers go through and they prune the vineyard. They start pruning everything, and and you'll notice that it's not just branches that have been pruned. You'll also notice a fair amount of grapes and fruit that has been pruned and thrown to the ground. You'll notice that they do that. And you're thinking like, man, that's a lot of money. Why are they doing that? Why are they doing this? But the ground is full of this compost, and why do they do this? So that it bears more fruit. That's why they're doing this. And it's not just more fruit, it's actually even healthier fruit. And so they go generations generations of this, and it's being able to produce a more valuable wine, a better wine. Jesus experienced a lot of pruning from the vine dresser, the Heavenly Father. He went through some serious pruning this evening and in the hours to follow this event. Tremendous physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual suffering and pain 
but it did produce this wonderful generational fruit moving forward. Generations upon generations of fruit produced by Jesus, and you are evidence of the pruning of Christ that he endured for you. We are all here because of God's pruning of Jesus. And we are some of the small worldwide fruit within all of world history that Jesus has produced. What is true of Jesus as the true vine will be true of the branches that are united and abiding in him. And we will face the same ridicule, abuse, mockery, insults. There will be things in our lives that people will question about us, accusations made against us that we're not living like them or think like them or believe like them or value like them, but the very things that cause the pain and the struggle in our life, the heavenly vine dresser will use to prune us so that we can bear more fruit. All of us have gone through pruning. Who hasn't? Who has not gone through pruning? I would love to meet you and shake your hand. But many times our own personal pruning allows us to then empathize, extend compassion and care for others, to then extend strength and encouragement, support, blessing to others. And we're not always able to explain why things happen or fully understand what people are going through. But we realize a little bit more the way the vine dresser brings fruit into our lives. But as people who don't know about vineyards and they don't know about vine dressing and they see the vine and the branches and they see all these cuts that the vine dresser is doing and they're like, what are you doing? You're injuring the plant. You're like, look, all the sap's coming out and all these other things. And I don't know, people around here are very sensitive when you cut trees. They do not like it, right? They come out, do you have a permit for that? Do you have this, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And it can even be an arborist that we've hired to like cut down a tree or trim it back or something. And like, this is a diseased tree. We need to cut this stuff. And this, so it might not look good to you. And a lot of times when I drive by and people are like pruning trees and stuff, like, what do they do to that thing? That thing looks hideous. Like they've cut everything, all the beauty's gone, but then they know what they're doing, right? They're not injuring the tree. They're actually making it more healthy. And if you have no idea about vine dressing or how vintners work, you go through and you're like, what are you doing? Look at all these grapes. Look at all this stuff. If you cut more leaves off, don't you ruin like photosynthesis and how is that going to work? And you start questioning the vine dresser and what they do and all this stuff. And people question the vine dresser even though they have no clue about what it takes to bear good fruit. People question God all the time. Why would God do that? Why does God do this? Why this? Why that? And it's like, do you even know how to bear healthy fruit? It's like you walking through a vineyard or you going by trees and stuff and you just look at it and you're like, why would somebody do that? But it's actually for the benefit of the vineyard. It's actually for the benefit of the tree to bear more fruit. And it's just... You don't know, but God does. God's doing things that you and I don't know about and it might not look right, but it is. And people do this with God all the time. God, the true vine dresser, knows exactly what he's doing. You and I might have some ideas, but we really don't know 
And in fact, if it was up to us, we'd probably do more damage and actually kill the vine. We'd kill the tree. See, God doesn't waste the pruning that he does. The core of the Christian life is communion, it's connection with Christ. And the way to grow in the Christian life is to abide in Christ. And the fruit of the Christian life is to have joy in Christ. That's the fruit that we have. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We are united, communing with Jesus Christ. When we abide, we grow in Christ and we'll experience the joy of Christ in us from that. And as the life with Christ in our life grows, so will this joy that is his joy be in us. Christ becomes our joy and we become Christ's joy. Isn't this like so wonderful that you and I can give incredible joy to Christ? This is an amazing thing. After all that Christ has given us, for us to be able to give something to Jesus is an awesome thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Some of you are going to celebrate Valentine's Day. Yes or maybe no? No? No. Well, who knows? Whatever. If you celebrate Valentine's it doesn't have to be Valentine's Day. It could be any gift-giving event. Just imagine this. For some of you, isn't it so difficult for you to shop for your loved one? Like, the most difficult person to shop for. Like, my wife getting me something is pointless. I don't care about a lot of things, right? Like the clothes I'm wearing, they're like over 10 years old. Like you can get me, it's like whatever. I don't really care. I drive a car that's 25 years old. I just don't, I, things just not my thing. So like buying gifts for me, she just doesn't even think about it anymore. It's a useless exercise. You don't know what to get them. See, Jesus can be like this because what can you possibly give the creator of the universe? What can you give? We can give him joy. That's a great gift. And that's the only thing that you can give in terms of your personal relationship is like between you and him. You're the only one that can give him the joy that only you can give him. Like my kids... They can give me joy. And if somebody else were to give that to me, it'd be like, it's not the same. Right? Like, my kid did really well at this wrestling tournament yesterday, right? She, like, she won first. And it's like this regional thing. And she won first. I couldn't believe it. And she was like, Dad, I did better than you. And I was like, yeah, I know. It's like so awesome. Every parent wishes. And she, I think she meant it as a burn to me, right? But I was like, oh, every parent wants their kid to do better. What are you talking about? I'm more proud of that than me. Like, what are you talking about? Of course, that's great. That's why my voice. I'm not sick. I was just like shouting so much. But like all the other weight classes that happened before her and after her, no joy. I don't, know, I don't know them. They're not my kids. With Jesus, you and him, you're his kid. You can give him joy. It's marvelous. You see, some people may view the Christian life as burdensome. The reason they view it as that is because all they hear is, I need to do better. 
or you need to do better, or we need to do better as a church, or that's all they hear. And if that's all you hear, dude, that's a burden. It's burdensome to do that. I mean, just do that to your kids. You know, your kid gets an A. Oh, it's not 100? Why didn't you get 100? Do better. It's like, come on. It's just a burden. And if this is how you're viewing the Christian life, then yes, it's, it's a burden. It's a burdensome thing. And experiencing joy with Christ is impossible living like this, where you always have to do like, what do I have to do? What do we have to do? What you have to do? And it's like doing, doing, doing. See, sharing the joy in Christ is really simple. It's faith in Christ. That's it. It's faith in Christ. And when you have faith in Christ, that's enough. You've brought joy to the Lord, and it's as simple as your faith in Him. You don't have to do anything. My kid doesn't have to do anything. When they were born, that was it. That was joyous. When you come to faith, when you are born again, that's enough. That was the birthing of it. That's it. That's joy. There's nothing more for you to do. There's no burden to bear. There is no burden. What burden is there? You were born. Just like your children, when they were born, they brought you joy. That was it. Because what can you and I possibly do for Christ that he can't do himself or get somebody else to do? Here's one thing. The joy that you bring him as his child. You're the only one that can do it. Only one. Your personal communion, joy with Christ in the abiding. No one else can do it. You can't have someone else do that for you. Only you. You're the only one. And it brings him immense joy. Immense joy. Joy that you can experience with him. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus Christ is our strength through joy. It's about the joy of the Lord. Not the joy in experiences or material things or any other idolatrous thing that just fades away. The only joy that doesn't fade away is the joy of the Lord, which is our eternal strength. Something for us to just kind of sit with this week, for you to just share with God. Lord, may I be a joy to you. And just sitting with that, with the joy of the Lord, knowing that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You bring joy to the Lord because you have faith in him. You were born again as a child of his. It's that simple. You bring joy. And you know that you gave Jesus the creator of the universe. Something only you could give. No one else could give it. Only you. And the personal joy only you can give him through communion with him and abiding with him. Let me close with this verse, verse 11 again. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, So humbling to know that the creator of the universe just finds this simple joy in us because we have faith in you.
And we're so busy being doers, especially in the Bay Area. We, we want results, we want empirical evidence, we want things, we want data, we want all these sorts of things to bring about changes. And your formula is so simple, it's faith in you. And then abiding in you, so having this communion and then abiding in you and then these evidences of fruit of our life coming out and people always questioning like why all the difficulties and challenges and suffering and all these things and yet all it is is you pruning so that we bear even more fruit. And yet we blame you for so many things or we blame the church for so many things or we blame Christians for so many things when it's just individually we can bring you so much joy, the only gift that we can give. God, I pray that we would just sit with this this week and as we've slowed down for our preparation for Easter, just camping out on this upper room discourse and, and then we're going to go through the horrible events that brought us salvation and then talking about your resurrection. Would you prepare our hearts and slow us down just to sit with you at this time for this all-important event throughout all history? In Jesus' name, amen. This time, uh, if you would like prayer, you can ask questions of uh, Susanna, who's in the right front pew, or Mike in the left front pew. Uh, they'd be happy, they'd be honored to pray with you. And at this time, we're going to take communion together. And so if you don't have those elements, just hold up your hands and we can get that over to you. This Passover dinner that Jesus was partaking in with the disciples has so many beautiful symbolic meanings. And a lot of what we see in communion is derived from that that Passover bread that was broken and Jesus passed and saying, this is my body. That's the symbol that we have today. That he was broken for us. And it was a sacrifice for us so that we can have communion with God. We take this in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. That fruit of the vine that is only alive to go to the branches if you and I are attached to that and it's living through that. We are abiding in that nourishment that he's giving us nourishment through that. We take this in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for this beautiful symbolism. We see this beautiful symbolism throughout the Bible. That vine at the entrance of the Holy of Holies when people would look at that and see this beauty, this value, and then for you to like bring it back and show them that, and then to bring them back to a vineyard and how that works, just the way that you teach is so deep. And we pray, Lord, that as we read the Bible, as we fellowship, as we worship, that our communion deepens with you, that our abiding is deepening with you. In Jesus' name, amen.